You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Robert Siegel, who is a lecturer at Stanford GSB, Graduate School of Business, also a venture capitalist with Piva and XSeed Ventures. And also the author of this book, The Brains and Brawn Company, How Leading Organizations Blend the Best of Digital and Physical. So welcome, Robert. Thanks, Greg. It's great to be here. You have this wonderful class called The Industrialist Dilemma that you teach in financial management. Classes called Digital Transformation. And I actually teach a course called Digital Transformation at a couple of different schools. And I've been doing this for a couple of years. In addition to the core strategy class, which I've been teaching for a couple decades, and then over in the finance world, we have corporate finance, and then we have kind of venture capital, and these are sort of separate classes. And a lot of people wonder, well, why do we have like these separate classes? One class for your basic foundational stuff, and then some other class for what we might think of as a more modern, more innovative types of companies. Shouldn't these all become one field at some point, right? I mean, shouldn't we just kind of fold in all of these new strategies and new ways of investing and just make it one big discipline? It kind of reminds me of in the late 90s, Wharton had this whole program on digital marketing and and digital commerce and e-commerce and they created their own department and then it disappeared because digital marketing is marketing, right? (laughs) At this point to some degree. (laughs) Right, right. Are we creating something that has a sunset provision or, or a half-life? And, you know, you mentioned the chief digital growth officer at AB InBev, and that position came with an expiration date because that was supposed to be just sort of guiding us through this transition and then we're done. Well, I would argue that digitization is kind of like breathing. Every company is going to have to increasingly integrate digitization into everything they do. And largely that has started from a process standpoint and an operational efficiency standpoint and how to use digital to kind of streamline largely backend systems. And what I've been seeing in the courses that I teach and in the companies that I've studied is the idea behind the course, the industrial dilemma and systems leadership was as every product and every service combines digital and physical that you really need to understand not only what digital brings, but leaders and companies need to be conversant in a combination of what I'll call the blocking and tackling physical sides of a business. It could be anything from logistics to manufacturing, to how you drive and shape your ecosystem, to how you operate at scale globally. And so the large, whether they were incumbents, large organizations have been around a long time or disruptors who start with a digital DNA and are moving into more traditional areas like mobility or healthcare or financial services, they're really having to blend both of the competencies of digital and physical. And so I think, yeah, I do think digitization is going to have a very short half-life because it's going to be, like you said, like marketing or sales, it's just going to be something that people do. I think it gets folded into probably at Stanford, we call it OIT, Operations and Information Technology. But the real question is, how do you think about designing products differently when your product is connected? For example, I'm talking to you now and I'm looking at a Sony DSLR camera. This product is connected to the internet and it's sending information, be it video, be it audio, et cetera. Things go back to the cloud. How Sony thinks about designing this camera, how we think about pulling the data off of this camera, using the data off of this camera, what needs to be on the back end, 
what sort of products or services I could be sold to me by Sony because of this camera. Every product is going to be connected in the future. And so this is where I've been spending most of my time is trying to understand how do you develop products differently in the future? How do you organize your companies differently? And then what are the skill sets required of the men and women who will be taking organizations forward, whether they come from a physical DNA originally or a digital DNA? So this difference between physical and digital is not to be confused with the distinction between young companies and old companies. I guess there may be a historical moment where old companies equal physical companies, but we've always had to think differently about managing young companies versus managing old companies, right? Old companies have systems that are in place, you know, rinse, wash, repeat. Young companies are still sowing their oats and figuring out what they're supposed to be doing and sorting through their, their business model. But now, like, there are old digital companies and there are young physical companies, right, to some degree. Well, let's look at Amazon. Amazon is a great company that blends digital and physical. We do our shopping through the interface on our computers or on our phones, but their logistics system is world-class, right? And Amazon Prime, which is kind of up there with fire in the wheel from one of the greatest inventions ever, and we've all become dependent upon it. That's a company that's relatively young, 25 plus years old, and they actually are great at a lot of the operational efficiencies and why they hire great leaders out of Walmart and other places that you needed to make sure that you had a great physical infrastructure. It's funny, you talk about young versus old. We can talk about cool versus uncool. Most of the older companies have physical DNAs. That's where they started doing. But you can even look at a company like John Deere, which is a very, very old and well-established company in the farming space. And they are incredibly advanced digitally. How they deal with their equipment, telematics they use on their equipment, data that they use for understanding. You know, they bought a company here in Silicon Valley called Blue River, which uses some amazing technology for how you can do your farming and agriculture more efficiently. So really, exactly like you said, the world has changed. And what I've learned in the 70 plus companies that we studied is that I would say that incumbents are not doomed and disruptors are not ordained. And what I mean by that is there will be some dinosaur companies, if you will, the physical older companies that won't actually make the transition to digital because they won't drive the change in their organization. But I'm going to say that some of these companies get it really well. And then some of the digital companies that really don't understand what it takes to be successful in terms of how you're going to deal with things like safety and how you're going to deal with things like how do you work with government. So there are some really good capabilities and competencies that come from both well-established companies and new companies. And the ones that blend the best of both, those will be the ones that win going forward. I'm as trained as an historian. We think about continuity versus discontinuity. We're trying to figure out like where are the big ruptures in history. And then when you step back, you're like, ah, yeah, French Revolution, no big deal. It's just, <laughs> you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same and stuff. And for as long as I've been studying business, we've always emphasized, at least some of us have always emphasized the importance of information flows and good, well-managed companies that are able to respond well to changes in the environment, to anticipate them and align incentives and so forth. Those are the companies that get information right. And the IT of the 19th century may have been like, double entry bookkeeping and really good accounting and make sure you got Western Union connecting all the train stations and so forth. And then the great IT in the 50s was everybody has mainframes and so forth. And when I started teaching strategy 20 years ago, we would do cases like, I still to this day use cases like Walmart and the airline industry. And, and it's like, hey, you know, Walmart succeeded because they really dug into their IT infrastructure and UPS and FedEx really dominated because they, they dug into their IT infrastructure. And the airlines, Robert Crandall in 1990 said, I'm running a software company that flies planes. 
Even the East India Company, they were able to dominate the world because they had the best communication. I mean, in addition to military power, right? They had the best communication systems that connected the different parts of the far-flung enterprise. So has it always been the case that the companies that really master information and, and data, those are the ones that dominate, even if they're dominating in things like the things you call the spine and the hands and so forth? Well, it's funny, in the academic literature, there's the phrase, the absorptive capacity of the organization, which is the ability to take data from the outside world, bring it inside to a company, and then most importantly, to take specific actions about what to do because you have that data. So it's not just the ability to kind of have the information come in, but the ability to drive change in the organization. And the companies that have been successful are the ones that are able to kind of adapt as the world changes. And so, yeah, you could talk about that in the context of bringing in information. I think that's a great way to look at things that in the past, whatever you were bringing in, whether it was sales information or customer information. But now I think what's a little bit different is the speed and the amount of data that's coming in. And the data is coming in increasingly from the products that we use and that we sell to our customers. Let's talk about Tesla. Your Tesla, if you own a Tesla, you park it in the garage at night, it connects to the Wi-Fi to your home network, and all the data and information about how your car performed gets sent up to Tesla. And they have this database of you know, miles that are being driven in their cars, how the cars are performed. And there are two things that happen. The first is they have the ability to send down new features and capabilities, right? Some people will turn on their Teslas in the morning and the car will have a new competency and a new capability that wasn't there before. So you're able to actually deliver new things that customers might want and keep that ongoing relationship with the customer. The second thing Tesla could do is if you remember when they sold the Model 3 originally, there was a braking problem and the consumer reports really dinged them for it. And three days after the consumer reports came out, they were able to push down a new version of the software that solved the braking problem. So you can think about it from like a product design, not only to keep your customer safer, and this is an automobile. Now you can also think about ways to delight your customers differently and how you think about your relationship with the customers. That's fundamentally different. Similarly, let's look at a company like Charles Schwab. Schwab, which has about $8 trillion in assets that have been deposited inside of Schwab right now, they get a ton of information. And so the question is not just do they have the data and the information, but more importantly, how do they use it and when do they use it? I remember talking to Walt Bettinger. He's the CEO of Schwab. In the 90 minutes I interviewed him the first time, he must have used the word trust 180 times in those 90 minutes and talking about the importance of that. And one example that they give is that if a Schwab customer logs into their Schwab account and clicks on life events and then clicks on divorce, Schwab may know at a moment in time what's happening with that customer and might even know before the spouse does. And one of the things that Schwab asked themselves, or the first thing they asked themselves is, through client's eyes, what would our customers want us to do with this data? So it's not just that you have data and that you can gather data and collect data, but do you use it intelligently and in a way that your customers are pleased and that they will say, I trust this company, I want to continue to engage with them and continue to work with them. And let me juxtapose that to our friends at Facebook. Nobody believes that Zuckerberg and Cheryl are using any of our data for our interests, our belief, whether we're right or wrong. I think conventional wisdom is that Facebook uses our data to benefit Facebook. And so I think that as you talk about this, it's not just the ability to get data and get information, but it's to be smart about it. Smart in how you design products, smart how you fix problems when they arise, and smart how you use that data and communication to earn trust on an ongoing basis with the people to whom you sell your products and services. 
Well, I mean, if you look at something like Tesla, I mean, you don't have to convince me that Tesla is the best in class in the automotive space, but I don't even think of them as being in the automotive. I think of them as a software company that makes cars. And so can a company like Mercedes-Benz, which you talk about in the book, you spent some time talking about how hard they're working to catch up, so to speak, but do they really stand a chance? I mean, realistically, are their capabilities actually worthwhile? I mean, I know that if the engineers from Mercedes-Benz come to the Tesla factory, they'd be like, oh yeah, our suspensions are better or our chassis are better. But at the end of the day, like, so what? Does it matter? <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, it's less important. Exactly. What I would argue is that Mercedes could compete with Tesla. They choose not to. And they choose not to because basically their DNA of their organization, and when I evaluate them in the book, they're world-class at manufacturing, logistics, all the other things that go into physical operating at scale globally, where they've been horrible as things like partnering, where they've been horrible as designing a great user experience, where they've been horrible as using data to figure out how to serve customers better, where they've been very mediocre is I'd say creativity and taking risks because they've been so traditionally focused on their existing market and that which made them great. We were talking earlier about my colleague, Charles O'Reilly, right? Charles will talk about exploit and explore. If you spend all of your time exploiting, you don't spend any of your time exploring. And I would say that Mercedes has been trapped and Daimler's been trapped on everything that made them successful in the past. And by the way, not because these people are stupid. They're actually quite smart. They figured out how to design beautiful cars. But to your point, the basis of competitive advantage changed in the industry. Why people buy luxury cars isn't necessarily about that the car has great torque. In fact, on the contrary, they want it to be smooth and silent and they want great software. And Mercedes basically focused in on that which differentiated cars 10 or 20 years ago and not why people are buying cars today. That was a choice. That was a choice they made was to focus on the present and the past as opposed to the future. But there are companies who are leading organizations who have been around a long time who've done a great job. We talked about John Deere. In the retail space, we can look at companies like Best Buy or Home Depot or even Target who've done a really good job of figuring out how to blend digital and physical. In fact, Brian Cornell, the CEO of Target, he's fond of saying, there is no such thing as commerce. There's just commerce. And it's digital and physical and it's both. And I think that's really kind of the thing that I've seen in the winning companies that we study is people kind of run towards the future. They run towards the disruption. Craig Miniar at Home Depot says, don't fight the inevitable. If customers want to shop digitally, the fact that we have these huge warehouse stores, our customers are going to shop digitally. The question is, how do these huge warehouse stores, how can we deliver goods and services in ways that meet their needs? And I think that's kind of the thing that I would encourage leaders in business to be thinking about is, are they really kind of running towards the disruption? Are they blending both the digital and the physical? And sure, incumbents can choose to be a part of it. That doesn't mean transitions won't be painful. That doesn't mean that some people might not emotionally or even skill set wise make the decision to invest in themselves to be relevant on a go forward basis. But that only thing that stops companies from doing it, and the only thing that stops individuals from doing it, is not investing in oneself and continuing to make one's careers and skills relevant with current times. You teach at Stanford, and I think outside of Silicon Valley. Stanford is known as a place where you have a lot of founders, right? You have a lot of entrepreneurs. There's a ton of venture capital. So I tell people, hey, if you want to be a founder, go to Stanford, go to Berkeley, whatever. But what's less well known is that the founders make up a minority of the students who pass through business schools like Stanford and Berkeley. And most people do go to work for more old legacy companies or traditional companies or companies been been around for a while, including even some what we might call legacy incumbent tech companies. But there is a difference. I mean, there is a difference in mentality. And, and I think you mentioned a case, Warby Parker, and I love referencing Warby Parker because they 
decided to launch a fully digital online e-commerce eyeglass store. But it wasn't very long before they decided to jump into the bricks and mortar. And I think a lot of people would think, well, okay, you have a comparative advantage in bricks and mortar or you have a comparative advantage in digital. So therefore, if you're a digital company trying to go into bricks and mortar, you're going to do just as poorly as a bricks and mortar company is going to do going into digital. And yet when they came into bricks and mortar, they immediately started operating, I think, more successfully than the companies that have been doing bricks and mortar for, for decades. So like, what is it that they brought in to the physical experience that the incumbents lacked, right? What is it about starting with digital and going into physical that might make that a little bit of a, an easier move than maybe going in the opposite direction? You know, it's funny. When I talk about Warby Parker in the book, I start with them actually in the bronze part of the book, in the physical side. If you think about it, you order the five glasses, five frames online, they shipped them to you. You tried them on and shipped them back. So let's start with the fact they're logistics. They knew how to do logistics from day one. Logistics was not an afterthought that was bolted on. It was a fundamental part of their business model. And then when they went to the retail stores, the advantage they had was they didn't have to be constrained by existing footprints or existing ways to think about how you design an eyeglass store. They made them very open. They made them very modern. You go in, you can still see all the glasses and then you can, by the way, try them on. And so if we think of eyeglasses as an experience good, this is one of these, they kind of figured out, well, okay, you can go through it digitally and do it in your home. But if you want to go see it at the store and try it on, fine, go drive down the street and go try these frames on right away. And so they already had, I would argue, a physical DNA before they opened the stores. And then they were very open-minded about what that store experience was like. And they could take some modern approaches to it. So I think like Warby Parker is a great example of a newish company that was able to combine digital and physical from day one. That one's kind of close to my heart because I actually wear seven different pairs of eyeglasses because, you know, with my bald head, I can't change my hair color <laughs> and kind of tattoos and piercings would not be on brand in front of the classroom. So every week I wear a different pair of glasses. Like I love going to the work of Parker. I think you might be able to get away with the tattoos and the piercings. I'm the old bald guy in front of the room. Like I kind of know my place and I'm okay with that. I'm not that cool and I'm not that hip. Well, so another example that you talk about is Netflix, right? I love talking about Netflix as a company that underwent a digital transformation, even though it was from day one, it was digital in a sense, but it was really a logistics was something that they were super, super good at. And they had to master from day one. But same with Tesla, they're manufacturing, they manufacture in a way that's very different, right? I mean, if they were manufacturing internal combustion engines, some of the traditional auto companies, they would rethink the whole manufacturing process from first principles. I think this is what Elon Musk famously said, is think like a physics person. Don't think incrementally. Don't take for granted the things that you already have. Is, is there something right. to that? Because part of the argument is that incumbents have all of these existing assets. They have all of these existing capabilities and you don't want to throw them away. But to what extent are, they, are you imprisoned by them? The routines and the ways of thinking that have been rewarded for many decades or years. The two examples you gave with Netflix, Netflix, they had the whole start with DVD rental, et cetera, but they realized they weren't in the DVD rental business. They were in the entertainment business. And so they were delivering movies. Basically, the DVD was just a delivery vehicle for the content. So for them, transitioning to a digital company became much more of, okay, it's just another way of delivering movies. And then as they've more vertically integrated into content, it was a way for them to basically capture more of the economic rents of what's available in the entertainment industry and their business model, they could get very creative 
they also had advantages of being a disruptor. They could take advantages of the capital markets and get access to a lot of cash relatively inexpensively and use that to kind of drive up the stack. And so the first thing I would say is they were very clear as to what value they were bringing to the customer, which was entertainment. And it happened to be in the form of movies originally. And you think about Tesla, the thing I've actually learned most about Tesla is less about the people and the executives at Tesla that I know, but talking about how the existing automotive industry has reacted to Tesla over the years. I remember when I wrote the Daimler case, the executives at Daimler were kind of like, yeah, well, we could build great cars if we were allowed to lose money on each of them. You know, and then so you talk about being constrained. They were basically saying we're constrained because we're a well-established, hundred-year-old plus German company, large employer for our country, and we have to deliver quarterly profits for widows and orphans. And there's some truth to that. But they chose not to hire a bunch of software people. They chose to try to design their own user experience as opposed to partnering with people. And so I would argue that the challenges that Daimler faced, sure, there were some constraints that they had that Tesla didn't, but they made choices about what they were going to focus on for the product and what they weren't going to focus on. And I think that's what has hurt Daimler in its ability to be successful against Tesla. Tesla also realized that there were things that the existing luxury car providers would put into their cars, even things like sound dampening, things that would make the car quieter. Customers didn't value that anymore. Like that wasn't why people bought the car. And so therefore they could lower their costs and the vehicles that they manufactured in some ways. And customers would be very forgiving of that because if they did a better job on the digital side or or added new features that the other luxury cars didn't have, consumers were willing to reward Tesla and purchase those products. So I would think that actually Daimler and Mercedes lost touch with the affluent buyer who was moving into the age when they can finally afford to buy a luxury car and what those people valued. And that's Mercedes and Daimler's fault. They didn't need to bend light in a way that light had never been bent before. They actually made a decision to focus on what had made them successful in the past. There's this famous story that Andy Grove tells in his book, Only the Paranoid Survive. And I actually was lucky enough, I was a young 26-year-old snot-nosed recent grad out of Stanford. And I got to work with Andy on that book. I did his research. And Andy tells a story about how in the mid 80s, he and Gordon Moore were struggling. Gordon was the CEO and Andy was the president. And they were trying to figure out like what to do about the memory business because the Japanese were just killing them. And one day Gordon walks into Andy's cubicle and says, hey, Andy, if we got fired tomorrow and the board brought in new leadership, what would the new leadership do? And Andy, without missing a beat, looks at Gordon and says, get us out of memories and focus on microprocessors. Now, the thing about that was interesting is Andy knew what to do inside. Intel was started to invent DRAMs. That's why they all left and started Intel. And he was basically saying that which we got started, we need to get rid of and jettison. And we need to focus on this small, but quickly growing and highly profitable business in microprocessors. He didn't hesitate when he said it. Gordon being Gordon says absolutely nothing for about seven or eight seconds looks at Andy and says, well, Andy, why don't you and I walk out the front door of the building, walk back in and do what we know what we're already supposed to do? What I love about that story is that's kind of the leadership of the ability to say, I'm going to molt my skin and I'm going to let go of that which makes me comfortable and that which I know, and I'm going to run towards the opportunity and the disruption. And that's scary. The second thing, I think for all of us, if like these kind of constraints can happen to people like Gordon Moore and Andy Grove, it can happen to the rest of us. So they were pretty good, those two, 
And even they get challenged by it. But I think the difference is, at least in that transition, they were able to kind of do what they needed to do to go forward. So I don't believe incumbents are doomed. And I do not believe that disruptors are ordained. There's a playbook. I just told that story in my class uh, a couple of days ago. So I appreciate you for helping to, <laughs> uh, I got to give you credit. I know some people that were Supreme Court clerks and they wound up writing all the opinions. And so they never get any of the credit. <laughs> no, it's Andy's story. Andy gets the credit. I was just his research monkey in the book and, you know, trying to make sure that the data was right. Yeah. But that does emphasize the importance of leadership. And a big part of your book is really about this idea of systems leadership and we think about business schools, right? We spend a lot of time talking about analytical methods and understanding how to understand finance and how to develop all these frameworks and so forth, including the frameworks that you have in, in your book. But at the end of the day, what you're trying to do is you're trying to create leaders. And as an historian, you look back and most of the big leaders in history are these political or, or military entrepreneurs. It'd be kind of hard to do a history of the last 20 years and find many political or military folks that have done great things, but most of the people doing great things seem to be business leaders now. And a lot of them have come through business schools. So they need these capabilities. What exactly is, is a systems leader? And would you characterize all great leaders as systems leaders? Or is there sort of a, a couple attributes that really matter now in a world where things are changing much more quickly? So let me talk first about systems leaders. And then I want to come back to your comments on business leaders in the last couple of decades, because I think that's really interesting. The idea behind systems leadership is that in a world where digital and physical are being blended, in the old days, you used to be able to rise up in a function. It could be finance, it could be engineering, it could be sales and marketing, it could be manufacturing. You'd move up in the organization and hopefully you'd get promoted. Eventually you might get a, a CEO job or a VP level job. And if you had good teammates that had other good complementary functions, you were fine. What I found in the great leaders that we were studying is that the great leaders had this ability to kind of blend digital and physical, but it was more than that. It was the ability to see interactions that would happen in a system. They could see it inside of their company, what would happen when two functions would interact. They could see what would happen when their company was interacting with somebody in their ecosystem and what was the action and reaction to it. It's really kind of about seeing the flow and seeing the system. And so a couple of things that we saw the great leaders do is they know how to operate at intersections. They know how to hit their quarterly numbers or their weekly sales numbers, and they can also manage innovation at the same time. In the old days, you'd have those two groups separate. And now days that like, leaders need to be able to know how to run a business well. And at the same token, they also know how to be able to kind of have small teams and how to drive them to try to do kind of frame breaking things. You have to be able to operate both globally and locally. You have to know how to like build platforms that can scale and operate globally, but how your platforms can be customized for local markets. I would say that the great systems leaders were also really good at managing context. My colleague, Jeff Immelt, my old boss from GE, likes to say that truth equals facts plus context. And it's the ability to give context to your employees, to your customers, to your partners, that it actually helps define truth. And I think that the great leaders that we studied were always ones that were able to be like good communicators and good storytellers. They really own their narrative. I'd say the last couple of things that I saw in great leaders right now with systems leaders is they have a product manager's mindset. In my course on product management, I say that that's kind of the hub and spoke, if you will, of any company. You've got to understand what customers want. You've got to be able to talk to your 
engineering and manufacturing teams to know what needs to be built. And then you've got to be able to communicate with your sales organization on how to separate customers from their money. You've got to be good at all of those things. And I found that great systems leaders have the ability to blend all those different parts of the organization and have those parts of the organizations accept them as one of their own. And the last thing is you have to go risk on at times of disruption. They run towards disruption and they embrace the disruption. Financial theory says that in volatile times, you're supposed to go risk off. And in smooth times, you go risk on. And I found great systems leaders go risk on. Like they are fundamentally running hard at disruption. They have to run towards it. And so I think that systems leaders in particular have that ability to blend that kind of IQ and EQ and everything that goes along with it and kind of live in that center of where the intersection happens. Call it digital and physical, call it inside and outside. And I think that's different than it was in the past. You made the comment that you think business leaders have been better than political leaders in the last 10 to 20 years. And I'm going to push back on that. I'm going to argue, I think we've had a massive failure on both fronts. I'm going to say that the displacement of labor and capital that we have seen that came from a lot of globalization, global leaders missed it. And so did a lot of business leaders. And I think that a lot of the business leaders that we're seeing today have largely been celebrated for their wealth creation, but it's not clear that these are people who are making society a better place. I mean, congratulations to Facebook for being worth a trillion dollars. As we see in the Facebook papers, right, all of our daughters are having image issues with Instagram. They know for the fact that they're spreading lies and they do it anyways. It's not clear to me that all business leaders have been doing a great thing, especially the ones in Silicon Valley. And the Silicon Valley that I grew up in, the men and women who ran this place when I was still in operating roles, These were people who always talked about serving society, not making the world a better place. Like they would go serve in Washington and Democratic and Republican administrations have asked to do so. Bob Noyce, one of the founders of Intel, did that. Hewlett and Packard. I couldn't imagine most tech leaders today saying, yeah, I'm going to go serve if I was called. You just don't hear that. And so I guess I'm a little bit more skeptical. I'm hopeful that when I look at our students, and you must see that when you teach at Stanford and at Cal, the students are awesome. I'm hopeful that they will do a better job than the current generation of business leaders. And I hope that we uh, at the business schools are doing a better job of training them, not just in finance and marketing and digitization and strategy and all the things that you and I teach them, product management, but also to be thinking more broadly about issues around what are the implications of these new services and products that we create? What does that mean to communities? What does it mean to their countries? What does it mean to international global conflict? And being aware of these kinds of issues. A new course I just started is called Business and Government, Power and Engagement in the 21st Century. And I think that's going to end up being the most important course that I teach at Stanford based upon you know, the nature of the discussions that we're having in the classroom. I certainly agree with you that business leaders do need to think a lot more carefully about the impact that they're having. I would say that we probably need to think in a little more of a balanced way, a little more of a historical way about some of the negative consequences of things like Facebook and Google. I mean, look, when the car was introduced, a lot of pollution, right? You know, railroad was introduced. They started lighting fields on fire. When the steel mills came in, coal mines, all this stuff, I mean, horrible, horrible pollution, but it did have a massive positive impact on human welfare in many ways. And I think that, you know, we look at Facebook and yeah, obviously huge attention issues and depressing issues. But in many ways, I I mean, the cost of launching new products and the ability to reach an audience and the ability to organize your information flows, if you are a careful curator of your newsfeed, it creates an enormous wealth and enormous possibilities. So I think it's kind of like we kind of figured out 
how to make the railroads a little less harmful. Plant your hay ricks 50 feet away from the railroad and stuff like that. You raise a great point. It's funny, in my product management class, we taught in the very last class session, we talk about industrialization and the industrial revolution. And if you look at product management in the tech industry today, we measure success based upon engagement, lack of churn, how long do we hold on to people, time people spend in an app without any context of understanding what does it do to the mental health of the people who buy our products or who we sell their data or, or serve them ads. And so one of the sayings at the Graduate School of Business is change lives, change organizations, change the world. There's a bunch of us on the faculty who, whenever that comes out, will scream out for good. Like, don't forget <laughs> to do it yeah. for good. Change is not good just for change's sake. Change is good when it allows us to live healthier lives, better lives, to create wealth, have the creature comforts that we get to do, be able to explore and see new things that we couldn't do before. And so I think being aware of that, and that kind of comes back to seeing the system. And so like mm -hmm. the industrial revolution, you're right, it was great. Like people are healthier, they live longer, we have more convenience and pollution was really bad. Well, what would have been like if the factory owners maybe thought of some of that up front? Some of the, the negative externalities, the negative consequences, could that have been mitigated? And similarly, with the products we build today, I would hope that our students, when they take over as business leaders for the next several decades, that that will be one of the things that there's in the forefront of their mind. And in a world that's unbelievably well-connected, in a world that we were talking about this earlier, you and I will often be doing executive education programs with people all over the world through our cameras at our home studios. I had one day two weeks ago where I was talking to a group of executives in the morning in Oman. In the late afternoon, I was talking to entrepreneurs in, in South Korea. And in the evening, I was talking to another group of executives in Kuala Lumpur. Well, I would hope in a world that's increasingly connected, we were aware of and understanding the ripple effects, both positive and negative of what we make, and that students and, and leaders will be aware of those things. I'm with you. I'm an optimistic person, right? You have to be. We're at Silicon Valley. Like, this is the greatest, most optimistic place in the world. But there can be downsides if we're not aware of what we create. And so I think just being aware of it, it allows leaders to actually mitigate those potential negative consequences. Yeah, and I think the idea of systems thinking is, that's not a new one, right? We think about systems. There have been courses on systems. And sometimes I have a colleague who teaches design thinking, a course it's called design thinking. And she's really frustrated because she really wants to call it systems thinking, right? Because that's really what it is. And if you are going to be a systems thinker, you have to give up some bit of specialization and you have to be more of a, a horizontal rather than, than a vertical thinker. I'm actually teaching a course in the spring at Stanford on the pandemic. And what we saw was we saw a lot of people who are epidemiologists and we saw a lot of people who are macroeconomists and we saw a lot of people who are ventilation experts, but we didn't have, I think, enough people who are able to sort of see all the different parts and how they fit together. And I think that's a big part of what we're doing as educators is trying to help people understand the right balance between depth and breadth. Do you think that in general, breadth is more important when things are, are changing rapidly? And then depth, you can organize depth better when things are more stable or what's the trade-off here? Economists are always thinking of trade-offs and I was so happy you had like a production possibility frontier in here. So you get warm my heart. When I see that, it just, it makes my economist heart warm. I think the notion of stability is a quaint notion. And I think stability in the indefinite future is just never going to happen. A few weeks ago, I was talking to one of my colleagues on the faculty we were having this conversation and the phrase that came to mind was future shock, Alvin Toffler's book from 1970. And I went back and looked at the book 
the whole idea behind Future Shock was about the information age and information overload and all the consequences of it. And in 1970, this dude, he forecasted experiences, the rental economy, the breakdown of the family, um, the displacement of labor and capital due to jobs clustering in urban centers. Like, it's kind of terrifying just how accurate this guy was 51 years ago in describing this. And what went through my head is, huh, the next 10 years are just going to be faster, right? There's going to be more and more and more change. So this notion of, do I, can I go deep when times are stable? I don't think there are stable times anytime in the near future. We're going to have to get increasingly used to the speed and we're going to have to get increasingly used to the fact that things are moving. I would argue leaders need to be able to see the flow. They need to be able to see where things are headed and where things are going. And so I think you simultaneously need to do breadth and depth. Absolutely, you have to add breadth, but you can't ignore the competencies and capabilities of your teammates and other functions. You're going to have to really understand their function. You don't have to be an expert in artificial intelligence, but you better understand what the algorithms are doing, how they work, and like, what does it mean for your company or your job? In my product management class, we have a few class sessions on how artificial intelligence is impacting product managers in a wide variety of companies. You can't ignore what that's going on. So I think you do need to have a little bit of depth in those areas that matter at the moment in time. I actually think that you can be an expert generalist, right? Like being a generalist, I think there is skill there, right? Like it's not just simply, oh, I'm bad at 50 things. It's like, no, you can specialize in being an integrator and, and being someone who's capable of knowing exactly how much you need to know and knowing exactly which fields need to be combined with which fields in order to move the ball forward. And I think in both the brains and the bronze section, you talk a bit about what might be described as corporate boundaries, right? So when you're talking about the inner ear, you're talking about the make-buy decision. But then when you're talking about the hand-eye, you're talking about the ecosystems and, and managing them. And this, of course, is one of the core concepts in strategy, but it also applies to individuals, right? I think everything that you say about strategy for companies applies to individuals. You have to decide what your strengths are going to be and then how you're going to interface with others. On the company side, one of the things I talk about in the brains and brawn framework, there are five brains and five brawn attributes, and you can rate your company one to 10, 10 being great and one being not very good on each of these attributes, and the perfect score is 100. And one of the things I say in the book is that no company gets 100. No company is going to get 100. There's going to be areas where you're better and worse. Really, what the tool allows you to do is to highlight those areas where you're strong and then think about other areas where you're either going to have to get good at it or you're going to figure out how to partner with other people who can complement in that area when you're not as strong. That exactly, as you said, I think that's true for us as individuals. I think great systems leaders are very self-aware. They're very self-aware of their own strengths and their own development needs. And we all have strengths and development needs. And in fact, in my case, my strength and my development need happens to be the exact same thing. My greatest strength is my passion, my energy. <laughs> you, know, you put me in front of the classroom, oh my God, that is my happy place. Like I'm running up and down the aisles, I'm cracking jokes, I'm talking a million miles an hour. That is my greatest place in the world and my favorite place to be. My passion is also my greatest development need. When I don't constrain a response to a stimulus, my passion, the example of this is flame emails. I used to do it a lot when I was younger. I still sometimes do it now, less so. I wish I didn't do it at all. I would get an email and I'll see an email. It'll just infuriate me, right? This is like, what the hell, right? And I'll hit reply all. I might even put a few <laughs> other people on the thread. And I'll write these emails that are cutting and they're sarcastic. Oh, and they're accurate. 
and they're always ineffective. They're always ineffective. And I have to learn, like, I'm still like growing on this. I still get it wrong. But like when I was younger, I got it wrong a lot. And I think that self-awareness of leaders that they need to be able to understand what are they good at? Where do I need teammates? That's a very important thing. And in a time of extreme change, like we're going through now, extreme volatility and volatility is going to become even harder. I think the men and women that we teach have really hard jobs because no matter what they do, they don't know the outcome. You and I know exactly what's going to happen when we teach. If we prepare, if we put the time in, everything's going to go fine. Look, some days our jokes are funnier than others. Some days we're smoother than others. But like broadly speaking, you and I were both trained to be teachers and we've honed our craft over the years. The people who are running businesses have to be like leading through these times of incredible uncertainty. And when you're going through these times of uncertainty, I think being aware of one's own strengths and development needs is absolutely critical because you can't do it all yourself. You won't always be the smartest person in the room. Well, certainly as a teacher, I have to crowdsource insight and knowledge. And luckily, I I learn from each batch of students, especially all the corporates that I work with. So I can take what I learned from the corporates and, and bring it back into the classroom and recycle stuff. But it's also important to be able to say, you know, hey, I don't know the answer to that. You know, like I can help structure a framework. I can help figure out what I would need to know in order to answer that question. But I, I certainly don't know the answer to that question. I use that as an opportunity to go teach a new class. Like I want to yes. be smart about this and I can only get smart yeah. if I figure out how to teach it. Exactly. No, I do the same thing. It's like planting the pole. It's like, all right, shoot, I better learn about this because I got to teach about it. I'm going to make a complete fool of myself in front of these men. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. When someone calls me, it's like, hey, would you like to do a program on the future of retail for this company? I'm like, sure. Yeah, I'll do it. And then I'm like, oh crap, I better figure out the future of retail. I got a month to figure it out. I better start smart. Yeah. But going back to that production possibility frontier, as economists, we're always thinking about trade-offs. And we always think that if you gain something, you're, you're giving something up. But there are a lot of opportunities, I think, in this book that are about win-wins. And you can kind of overcome or transcend some of these trade-offs if you understand what you are good at and what you can be better at or have that risk-on mindset where you can start shedding or sloughing some of the things that are holding you back. And so when it comes to KPIs, companies are always constantly measuring themselves, profitability, sales, et cetera. But the things like your scorecard, your scorecard is kind of a leading indicator. It's a self-diagnosis. It's a little bit less objective, but presumably companies can measure themselves to see kind of where they're headed. Do we need more standardized ways of evaluating whether companies are making progress? So I'm going to argue yes, but I think perfection is the enemy of good. And so if you look at the brains and brawn framework, whether a company scores 84 or 82 is not the point. If they score 84 versus 61, that's the point. You want to be able to quantify sometimes things that we know intuitively. And so these tools are just that, they're tools. If they help people get insight into what's going on, that's the purpose of what frameworks are are helpful for. At this moment in time, and I think for at least the foreseeable future, when products and services combine physical and digital, We know that's going to happen. And so the famous hockey saying attributed to Wayne Gretzky, you skate to where the puck is going to be, not where the puck is. And I think that's what leaders need to do. And in a world that's increasingly connected, trying to understand the forces. One of the things I talk about in the chapter on hand-eye coordination is drawing an influence map. 
of your ecosystem and understanding who's in the ecosystem. And then what's the relationship between those parties? Who's driving who? Who has influence over somebody else? Who's got dependence upon somebody else? You can also think about the like, who's under stress and what might that do to the ecosystem? And so I think great leaders and, and companies need to be able to kind of be thinking more about how they're going to be growing and changing and evolving. And a framework or a scorecard is just one way to say, aha, like this gives me a way to look at something I probably know intuitively, but it gives me a kind of a, an objective way. It's more objective than just a feeling to say, hey, look, I've rated myself or I've rated our company on these 10 attributes. How do we do? And when I compare Daimler and 23andMe in the book, you could sit there and say, wow, how come 23andMe scores so much more highly? Than Daimler. Daimler's so much bigger and everything else. And I'm like, yeah, but if I had to choose which of the two stocks I was going to buy, I know which one I'd buy. Sure, there's risks with both, but I think 23andMe is way better positioned for the next 10 to 20 years than Daimler is. So have you done the scorecard on, say, Stanford GSB? Have you done it on Stanford? I mean, look, we're in what you refer to as heavyweights, incumbents, legacy companies. And, and you did describe how the pandemic forced it a little bit of acceleration towards digital teaching, but there are certain institutional forces at work in large universities that we're on a 40-year professor cycle, right? I mean, there's certain things that keep us moving slowly, but again, we're also in the learning business. So that gives us kind of a leg up against other legacy companies. If you were to be honest about evaluating top schools, MIT, Harvard, Stanford, Berkeley, EY just announced they're creating their own business school. We've got all these startups. We've got business leaders saying, hey, these folks coming out of business schools, they don't know enough analytics. They don't know enough this. They don't can't do strategic problem solving. So if we were to be honest, how would we evaluate our brains and brawn? I think it's hard to give a score for the entire industry, but I, I think there are certain vectors that impact all of higher education when it comes to business. The question is, is business school necessary? There's a lot of stuff, I think, in the curriculum that you can find online. A lot of private companies are starting to give some of that early, what I'll call the first-year foundational learnings that you can get. And it's not clear that you need to sit into certain types of courses, introduction to marketing, introduction to accounting, introduction to finance. You might be able to learn that more effectively digitally or actually inside of a company. What I think the business schools do well is when we change the curriculum, you know, you get to experiential learning. There's a lot of the network that goes on with alumni, with fellow classmates, with faculty members. And so I think that there's a lot of value and a lot of leading edge research that does get done. And a lot of business schools bring in practitioners. And right? I'm grateful and fortunate that Stanford brought me in as a practitioner to partner with a lot of my tenure line colleagues at the GSB. I do think, though, we really run the risk that if the MBA degree does not evolve, there could be some real problems. It's a very expensive value proposition, right, with the cost of higher education. And so a lot of people are going to ask, is it worth taking the time off to do a two-year in-residence program? As wonderful as that is, the opportunity cost becomes higher given the cost of the degree. And by the way, some of the higher-end schools will do better than what I'll call the middle-tier schools. But even the higher-end schools are going to face some of these challenges because people are going to sit there and say, how much money can I make somewhere else or what can I learn somewhere else? Look at what we're doing now, right? Our ability to teach companies very inexpensively using home computing technology and home communication technology creates opportunities for learning that doesn't necessarily have to happen in that context. So I think the best business schools will also blend digital and physical. I've been hugely impressed 
with the attitude and the activities at HBS in particular about how they're really running towards the disruption since the pandemic. We did a lot of sharing notes. I was deeply involved at Stanford designing our hybrid teaching environment at the height of the pandemic. And HBS, both sides were comparing notes back and forth, and they just did a phenomenal job and have applied a ton of resources to it. So I think at the one hand, we've got to make sure that we deliver a great experience. We've also, and you kind of hinted on this, we've got to deliver relevant experience. We've got to deliver research and data and ways of educating our students that are beneficial to what employers are going to want. Now, we've got to be careful. We don't want to become a trade school. Like, like in my product management class, I'm not going to teach the students how to use JIRA. They can figure that out another way. But I am going to show them, say, 50 years of product management tools and look for the themes underneath them that kind of go into like why these things are in product management. A great example is, you know, when I talk about Agile and Scrum, most of my students don't understand that Kanban and Agile and Scrum comes from, you know, TQM and Total Quality Manufacturing at Toyota and in factories in the 70s. And so it's the ideas behind what makes things work. How that'll get instantiated, that'll change. In five years, Jira will be dead and everybody will be using something else. So the real thing for us is to make sure that we're staying relevant. We're making aware of what are the skill sets where our students can go get jobs later. But also, I don't think we want to become a trade school because that will have too much of a finite window. And I don't think that's where our competitive advantage is. Either at Cal, at Harvard, at Stanford, at MIT, choose your favorite top tier school. And anybody I left out that's not meant to in any way to offend, whether it's Wharton or Tuck or Kellogg, choose any of the great universities that are out there. Sure. I mean, I think there's the content piece. There's also the delivery piece, right? So we've traditionally been this bricks and mortar space. And ultimately the experience has to be multi-channel, even for the students that are on campus. If they don't have a searchable student directory, if they can't figure out what room they're supposed to go to, if their Wi-Fi is not working, right? I mean, those kinds of things are going to get in the way of high quality product delivery. And then the other thing is, I think that We've thought about bricks and mortar and we thought about online. And I remember I was, I taught the first online course at Haas back in, in 2011. There was somebody in the room like 10 feet away. All the students were like 10 feet away from the studio, a lot of them. And the Wi Fi didn't work very well. But the idea is like, well, you got to be able to think about those things not as completely separate universes with separate PLs and, and separate teams, but rather as part of this comprehensive suite of offerings that people can kind of move in and out of. And that's very difficult for people who have been very, very deep generally in a particular area. I don't know about you. One of the best things that ever happened to me that I was able to leverage during the pandemic was 25 years ago, 27, 28 years ago. I went through media training when I worked at Intel because I was starting mm -hmm. to do a lot more interviews with the press, you know, be it journalists or be it on television. And one of the comments I made when we were teaching on Zoom is, oh, this is TV. And like, you know, of course, everyone got furious at me. We are not that bad, shallow television. Yeah. No, 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 no. It's a camera and it's a microphone. Yeah. It's television. And right. so we have to think about how we deliver our content. It's not that we're just going to be lecturing and streaming at them. The great thing is it's all interactive. How do we make it interactive, but using this? Like right now, I'm not making eye contact with you. I'm staring into the damn camera. It's awful. But I know how to do this because Intel taught me how to do this 25 <laughs> years ago. And every now and then when the students are talking, they sneak and look at one of the five screens I have in front of me to see when I've got everybody on gallery view. And I can see if they're paying attention or if they're bored or if they're laughing at my stupid dad jokes. And by the way, you and I, if we came from a commercial setting, we might have had that training. Some of our teammates haven't had that training. One of the things I think it's incumbent upon us as business schools, and actually it's true for education broadly, is are we training our instructors? 
to how to take advantage of these mediums. Because to your point, we're going to have to be good at both doing this and being entertaining in the classroom as well. And not just entertainment in a vapid and shallow way, but how do we get our content in across in a way that's going to hold attention of our students when we're competing against TikTok? Let's face it, that's what we're competing against. And we've got to make sure we can bring a lot of the energy, a lot of the fun, a lot of the joy that comes from learning and do so in a way on hopefully slightly deeper topics than you might see on TikTok. Reed Hastings said that he viewed his major competition as sleep. And so it's not another streaming company. It's basically eating, sleeping, talking, sex. So that's just so good at so many levels. Let's start for like Headspace, you know, the app, the meditation Uh company. That's what they said. Like exactly what you just said. Their competition is like drinking beer. Yeah. Now here's the other thing. If you think your competition is sleep, that's a horrible thing to say. Truly (laughs) horrific. Because that means that your job is to keep your customer awake as long as possible. You know that's not healthy. Like, no, that is not healthy that I'm trying to prevent my customers from sleeping because we all need sleep. That's an example of going back to where we were 10 or 15 minutes ago. We got to be thinking about, are we building products and services that do good and do well? Because like killing your customers is a really bad idea. I don't think it was meant literally. I think when Stanford is thinking about who's their competition, it's not just Berkeley. I mean, it's basically TikTok. It's Udemy. It's television. It's book reading. It's everything. But we're talking sleep. Sleep is a fundamental thing that humans need. And even if you throw that out there as the CEO of the business, you can sit there and say, look, my competition is them going to the bar with friends because then it's about socialization. Okay, I get that. My competition is them reading a book. I kind of get that. But like when you're literally trying to say my competition is that which keeps my customer healthy, like (laughs) this is a problem. And I think Silicon Valley is completely oblivious to this. We have like no EQ. I argue that Silicon Valley is one of the most closed-minded places in the world. You know, there's a great book called System Error by several of our colleagues here at Stanford that just came out, Marin and Rob. And they talk about this notion of the optimization culture. We're trying to optimize everything. We're trying to hack our life. No, you're not trying to freaking hack your life. You're trying to live your life. Okay. You get one go around on the spinning ball and that's actually a problem. It's a real problem. And I think it's a major, major EQ hole in the circles of which we run. Well, you also mentioned the importance of balancing EQ and IQ. That's a big part of being a systems leader, but there is this discontinuity, right? Once you abandon the 60 seat classroom, whatever it is that you're providing content wise, Obviously not the other stuff, not the the network. There's so much other value that goes into a business school education. But once you go digital, then you can really scale. And the content that folks at our schools have been getting in as elite members of this very narrow community are now available and accessible to folks in a much broader way. I think it's about the and. There were people who can't go to Cal, people who can't go to Stanford for whatever reason, but we now have the ability to help educate them. And I would think broadly speaking, educating our species, no matter where in the world they live, that's a good thing. But there is something more about being in the classroom. And we're seeing this with companies going back to work. Sure, it's been kind of nice. A lot of people and companies figured out how to function on Zoom. But like when you go back into the office, you actually can be more effective. Well, maybe you're not going to be back in the office five days a week, but Nobody's going to be like in their pajamas five days a week like we were at the beginning of the pandemic. You're going to have this blend. And we have to do that in the classroom. And we have to figure out when the students are on campus, how do we make it a great and impactful experience? And when do we reach them when they're not on campus? It's all about the and. Yeah. Well, Robert, it's been great chatting with you. The book here, I think we could probably keep going and going and going. If I could crack open some beers here and we could share them, I'm sure we'd just keep going. But here's the book, The Brains and Brawn Company. 
check it out. I think you've gotten a flavor for Robert's passion and enthusiasm for helping folks to become great leaders and to build great companies. Thanks so much, Robert. Thanks so much for having me. A real fun time, and I look forward to uh, more conversations in the future. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. Thank you.